to bring their dispute with the Iranian government on the subject of the termination of the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil companies. Uh, Throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostages' peace. is the first movie from Iran to win the Academy Award for... The game, some said, would never take place. Here it is unfolding with real drama, and it's Iran, five minutes before Hello, and welcome to the Iran 1400 English Podcast. On today's episode, you will listen to the audio extracted from an August 7th Spotlighting an Author event featuring Professor Fatima Shams. In this event, Professor Fatima Shams discussed her new book, A Revolution in Rhyme, Poetic Co-Option Under the Islamic Republic. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everyone, wherever you are. Um, and thank you for uh, making this event a possibility. Um, um, you and your colleagues at uh, Iran 1400 Project, which I believe is one of the um, most interesting and uh, really engaging projects that are currently ha- that is currently happening. Uh, um, so yeah, the book for those of you who have possibly seen it um, is called, and as Christian mentioned, as the book is called A Revolution in Rhyme, Poetry Cooperation um, Under the Islamic Republic. Um, and um, um, it was published this year and it has come out of, I mean, it, the book itself is a product of my personal and professional uh, life really both in and outside Iran. Um, if I want to, if I, you know, would want to um, sort of summarize uh, the um, uh, main arguments that I have uh, made in this book and also the main questions, um, I would start with by saying that this book is about state building and institutionalization of poetry after the 1979 revolution. That really is the core topic of the book. Um, I have tried to explain in this book the role of poetry in state building and also the dissemination of political ideology in the uh, post-revolutionary period. Um, The mechanisms that have been used by, but the mechanisms that have been used by the state and by the state officials in the past four decades in order to um, make this uh, possible, this project, uh, which I call poetic cooperation, and I will explain later what do I mean by that. Um, and I've tried in the book to show how uh, this project, this ideological and political and literary project, um, relates to a specific type of approach to the literary path. Um, and what, you know, and, and basically widely um, and closely looking at the poetic output of the state-sponsored poets in the past uh, four, four decades or 42 years. The book consists of uh, seven chapters. Um, I have, you know, and it's, um, the, the sort of the framework uh, is a combination of chronological and thematic 
um, sort of approach to this uh, to this project. Uh, it starts by uh, rethinking the Islamic Republican canon and the canon formation and reformation um, after the revolution. Uh, the main uh, one of the main goals that I have tried to uh, fulfill in this book has been to uh, basically challenge and criticize um, the um, uh, the binary and episodic approach to the literary history and literary historiography. What do I mean by that? Um, in the past 42 years, um, basically not a single book has been written on this particular topic. Um, and that has kept me um, sort of busy in the past 10 years at least of my uh, life as a, as a researcher, as a grad student, and, and later on as um, sort of an assistant professor, that why has this been the case? Why these poets, why this literary project has never really received any attention by the scholars of the field? Uh, what are the reasons um, and how can we problematize this reluctance among the literary historians um, to address and to study this um, uh, kind of trend? I try to very briefly uh, answer this question, why? In the book, in the introduction of the book, I deal with this in detail, um, and I have answered this question. I've tried to problematize and contextualize this lack of attention and gap in the field. Um, one of the reasons has been the lack, lack of physical presence and contact with Iran among the scholars um, of the Persian literary field. Um, many of the scholars who uh, were forced to leave Iran and were exiled mainly as a result of the cultural revolution that happened in the 1980s in Iran have, have been unable to go back. And this lack of contact with the country, um, in my view, has created a huge gap and also to a certain extent also misunderstanding um, and lack of like knowledge of basically the ongoing change and the ongoing development in the literary scene and in the official uh, literary scene in particular. Um, the information and the knowledge has been always filtered through headlines and through uh, different ideological uh, sort of filters and um, channels. Um, and this really has created a serious problem in the field. The problem mainly um, is sort of emerging from the fact that there has been, and rightly so, invaluable work that has been done in the field by major scholars of the literary uh, um, studies, Persian literature in particular, I'm talking about modern Persian literature and also medieval Persian literature, but since I'm a modernist, my focus really is on the modern period. The emphasis has been on the resistance and the defiance of uh, the Persian intelligentsia, mostly the uh, former revolutionary um, period, you know, the pre-revolutionary period, basically. Um, the authors who were at once revolutionary and inspired by the 1979 revolution and then after the revolution were basically dismayed and disillusioned by the outcome and uh, 
mostly purged or censored or widely marginalized. Um, and as I mentioned, there are, um, there are amazing work has been done on these uh, poets and writers on censorship also. But there is always, there's been always this persistent gap um, and lack of scholarship on the conformism and ideology. So um, one of the goals of this book is to show that how the post-revolutionary generation of scholars who have the experience have had the experience of living under the Islamic Republic, going to school under the Islamic Republic, getting educated through their school textbooks. How do they see Iran? And I'm one of them. Uh, the Iran-Iraq war generation and the post-war generation. Um, what did they learn in a school? And what, did, what does their uh, collective social memory entail as far as poetry and songs and revolutionary songs are concerned? And what is the relationship of these components with ideology and with the state and with the seat of power? I'm fa always been fascinated with the by the relationship between power and poetry. And in the book, I try to show that this relationship between poetry and patronage um, is really distinct and unique when it comes to the Persian literary uh, history. We have a rich poetic past where poets um, and you know court poetry um, was extremely popular and uh, really um, was the mean the major sort of source for the poets to make their income and also to create some of the most wonderful poets poems and literary work that even to this day, uh, the scholars are fascinated by them and study them, created, very created in the court. So one of, one of the sort of the objectives of this work is to show this continuation, this continuity, continuity rather than rupture since um, the revolution. One of the problems in my view, not only in the field of literary studies, but also in other fields, in, in history, in politics, in economics. And also if you go on Twitter and social media these days, you see that there is this mentality that the 1979 revolution uh, has been a moment of rupture. There has been this uh, world before the revolution and this world after the revolution, and they're completely um, detached from each other. They have nothing to do with each other. The rulers of the Islamic Republic have nothing to do, nothing in common with, the, with their predecessors and vice versa. Um, and I think that by challenging this mindset and this approach to history and to the you know, humanities and sort of the field, really the field of humanities, whatever the, our focus is, um, there, there are many uh, interesting um, sort of pathways that open up and sort of emerge um, in the field uh, where we can do much, much more creative, uh, you know, uh, research. Um, in this book, I show how uh, this uh, misconception of the about uh, the official literature or the state-sponsored literature 
that this kind of literature only, or poetry in particular, since I'm focused on focused in the book on poetry, how this sort of misunderstanding that this type or this poetic trend only emerged as an after effect of the revolution. It was a poetic trend that never existed. It didn't have any roots in the past. And this is also one of the reasons that scholars have been reluctant to focus on these poets because they believe that you know this past four decades of propagandistic literature and poetry has nothing that's worth their time and their attention um, and has nothing also to do with this rich literary past. Well, I think uh, with all due respect, I think this is wrong and misleading to sort of litter and ignore these poets and their work um, because I truly believe and I show in the book how they are engaged very consciously so as you also saw in the teaser with the past and which parts of this literary past has been selectively um, chosen not only by these poets but also by the state ideological apparatus by the two leaders of the Islamic Republic Ruhollah Khomeini and Said Ali Khamenei, who are both poets in their own right, whether or not we like their poetic output, they're fascinated, were and are fascinated by poetry. Ali Khamenei still to this day, even during the Corona time, um, they had their poetic uh, sort of poetry ceremonies, annual poetry ceremonies, and he takes it very seriously. He very much likes to be um, sort of centered and also seen and perceived as not only a political leader, but also as a poet and a literary critique. He make it, makes it very clear every year that poetry and words and Persian language as one of the, one of two pillars of the Islamic Republican ideology and the other pillar being Islam matter to him and how reforming the Persian language through poetry and disseminating the ideology and the values of the Islamic Republic through verse is extremely critical and important to him. So we, can't, we cannot, for those of us who are dealing with modern Iran, we cannot simply ignore this dimension and this aspect of the political leadership in today's Iran. Um, so, speaking of the episodic approach, in the book, I, try, I have tried uh, to show that how um, we can find these uh, similar patterns, the relationship between the poets with the seat of power since 10th century to this day, and how this has evolved over time. I'm not claiming that what we have today is court poetry. That's one of the misunderstandings that unfortunately has, you know, um, been very common since this book has come out. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is to show how, and this has been done in the book through a very um, multidisciplinary uh, theoretical approach through, um, uh, theories from political science and theories from psychoanalysis and also from literary criticism, I have tried to show how a certain traditions, 
such as court poetry that existed in the past, um, and also return to a specific historical historical past, as we saw during uh, the very last years of Muhammad Azashah Pahlavi's reign, where he called himself the son of Aryan race, or uh, the Aryomer, all the way to uh, Rolar Khomeini, who calls himself an idol breaker, going back to um, uh, Abraham, Abraham, and sort of, you know, um, uh, trying and uh, trying to focus on a completely different or shifting the historical direction from this pre-Islamic Zoroastrian past that was very much the focus of the secular nationalist project of the pre-revolutionary um, Muhammad Shah uh, period, um, all the way with, uh, to the return to an Islamic past. And I have shown in the book, uh, it starts in the introduction, all the way to the very last chapter of the book, that how this political approach is in fact shown and displayed, it, it, it also is very much present in the poetry, um, the poetic output um, of the pre and post-revolutionary period. One of the major um, arguments that I make in the book is that uh, this poetic trend doesn't come out or hasn't come out after the revolution, hasn't come out of the revolution. So there is no uh, sort of cause and effect relationship between revolution and literature in general, in my view. I think that, and I show in the book how Islam uh, as a political discourse, as an ideology uh, of resistance was used in fact by poets who had nothing to do with sort of the Islamist groups. Uh, it was very common among po poets with leftist tendencies, with some members of the Kahneman Medistan de Gaon or the Writers Association. In fact, the first poet who called Khomeini by the title of Imam was Ne'emat Mirza Zadeh, who was a poet that was very much closer to the leftist poet of the Writers Association. Um, and, you know, if those of you who are familiar with the pre-revolutionary period, perhaps recall the last words of Postrugal Sosi's trial when he, um, you know, went back and sort of um, recalled uh, Hussein, Imam Hussein and his uh, sort of crusade and jihad and war against uh, injustice. So we see this uh, before the revolution. And of course, we see this among those uh, poets of the first generation of this particular poetic trend that I study in the book, those who were around before the revolution, such as Musabi Gamarudi, Tahir Safarzadeh, Ali Mu'allem, Hamid Sabzawari, and so forth. And then we see this also in the post-revolutionary period, of course, with those poets that in the wake of the revolution, when they uh, basically uh, started their uh, professional li uh, literary um, uh, sort of career uh, around the time of the revolution. And these are the poets that I call in, this, in the book as the second generation. And I think this is a very important um, sort of uh, breadth sort of contribution to the field. This book 
tries to show how um, by focusing on continuities, we, have ch we can change our approach and our understanding of the literary evolution and also the developments and changes in the literary history without being just ideologically focused and sort of single-minded um, and by reducing literature and literary production to political events. Um, so, and at the same time, having said that, uh, I think it's very important to see and understand the ways in which Islam itself, the meaning of Islam itself has changed from a political discourse of resistance to um, a ruling ideology. Um, and again, if we look at the way in the way that the Islamic Republic has tried in the past four decades to redefine a new literary genre or to define it in its own way. The literature of the Islamic revolution, unfortunately my PowerPoint didn't work, but um, I had uh, one of the pages of uh, the school textbooks um, to show you that the high school literature textbook, basically the 10th grade for those of you who would like to go and check, Adabiyat Enqilab Islami, which comes in the Guna Shanasi or the typology of the sort of the literary trend, and the literature of the Islamic revolution, literature of the Islamic revolution. So that in that episodic approach, that dangerous episodic approach, on the other side of the spectrum, is promoted by the state itself. And that's why I think it's very important for us scholars to break away from this binary approach. And you know, according to these school textbooks, the body of this body of literature, and I quote, includes poems and writings that have been produced since the victory of the revolution. The themes of such works include Islamic culture, Imam Hussein's revolt, Khomeini's thought, and the cultural and spiritual qualities of the revolutionary society. You can see how uh, sort of uh, occasional this, uh, to borrow my uh, wonderful mentor and colleague who's also here, uh, Dr. Ahmad Karimi Hakak, he has a wonderful article on the occasional uh, poetry and literature after the revolution, the rise of it, of course, it existed in the past, the rise of that, the revival of it. Um, and you can see that this topical, this sort of occasional topical literature was very much part of this literary project, this view of approach to poetry and literature. Um, and I think this is very important to, for us to see how the meaning of Islam and the position of Islam also changes in the pre and the post-revolutionary period. Um, and I try also to show how this approach to Islam is very much closely, intimately tied with, um, with the literary tradition. So um, I had a video to share with you, which basically was, basically shows this act of cooptation or familiar, familiarizing the new um, or the reification of the aesthetic literary poetic aesthetics, of course, I mean here, of the past. That's what I mean by co-optation, that these poets took things that existed in the past 
and used it for a distinct ideological purpose. A great example is one of the major, um, you know, um, uh, poems, uh, sorry, revolutionary songs um, that again, Dr. Kami Hakkak has written also about this. Um, um, and I urge everyone to read it. And, and in fact, that, that uh, those lines for me, which are his memories, his vivid memories of those days of revolution, the early days of revolution, for me was one of the major sources of inspiration to write this book. Um, since I, you can't see the video, I think the audio also helps for those of you who understand, per, understand Persian. For those of you who don't understand, this is a famous revolutionary song written by Hamid Sabzavari, one of the poets that I study in the book. Um, and he uses uh, some lines of the 14th century poet, a couple of verses from one of the famous sonnets, Ghazals of Hafez Shirazi, the, arguably the most famous, the, the most famous and most popular poet, Persian poet to this day. He uses that in reference, but with a distinct ideological purpose and with a specific reference to Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, and the line is, when the demon leads, the angel arrives. I will just uh, play that part of the song for those of you who, who at least they have some audio experience with the material that I have put, uh, sort of in, included in the book. But the parts that you heard, for those of you who didn't don't understand Persian, those the part that I played for you basically were lines from Hafez Shirazi. And you know, one might ask, what does what does a cup, you know, what do um, uh, lines from a very famous Ghazal by 14th century poet do in the middle of a revolutionary song um, that was made in 1979 upon the arrival of the exiled cleric from Paris? Um, well, that's basically the core of this book I try to show. And this is, I think, this is the best example and many other examples that I show in the book, acts of cooptation. Um, you take things from the past and then you redefine them and sort of represent them um, for a different purpose or a different objective. Um, um, I'll keep it very um, sort of, I'll try to keep it brief here and I have a couple of more minutes. Um, so I studied 10 poets in this book, as I mentioned, I divide them into two different generations and I show through their life and also through their literary career, how these poets evolved. And I also show that, you know, it's although these poets were quote unquote conformists and sponsored by the state, they also were, had their poetic individuality. 
um, it's you know this sort of black and white idea of because this poet was close to this particular ideological uh, belief system, they are completely like you know that we should not study them, we should just stay away from them and all of that. Um, they're not real poets and so forth. So I I argue against this uh, black and white picture, and I show that these poets did not remain the same. Um, each of them were distinct individuals, very different from each other, although they were, they, were, they also had a lot in common. During the wartime, how, um, you know, they used this particular literary path that was basically, um, and, and also sort of, uh, which was the mi mystical tradition, um, um, and how they used that for their own distinct purpose, how um, drunkenness, and Samoa, or the weirlings, that sort of the mystical weirling um, was used um, as a way to represent or re sort of uh, uh, cover the, the bloody and the violent face of death in the field or martyrdom or the ideology of martyrdom, how poetry and particularly mystical poetry and mystical themes helped um, to create this poetic violence uh, in, in during the war. But then many of these poets, including Hassan Husseini, including Qaisar uh, Aminpour, um, or Muhammad Azza Malikian, they gradually were disillusioned by who they were and what they wrote. And one of these poets, Qaisar Aminpour, uh, months before his death actually had an interview where you know, he was awarded as, a as the national war poet of Iran by the government. But then after, um, after the war and, you know, in, towards the late 1990s, he started writing poems for peace. He has three pieces, uh, three po poems called uh, Poems for, uh, for Peace. Um, and also he said in an interview that I wish I would never, I've never written those poems. Um, meaning poems of war. So, and then go and read my poems for peace. And I think this is very important. You know, it's important to include all of these different and um, sort of sometimes even paradoxical and, um, uh, you know, opposing views um, of these poets in order to complicate really the page. You know, it's very easy to always to start from one point and end and have a destination, then we, then we do research and to just be um, quite linear in, and binary in our understanding of history and human beings and poetry and literature in particular. Um, and I think by including all these different pieces of puzzle, uh, we just simply make history and literary history much more um, interesting and sort of this difference in um, the way, the dynamic of change, uh, how from one uh, decade to the, to the next, we see that these, this dynamism, this social and political dynamism also changes. Um, I finish by saying that this story of poetry and power in Iran, in today's Iran is very much ongoing. Um, I say this, I have stated this in the final chapter of the book also, that um, as I ended and I closed the book, there were there are many poets inside Iran. I would like to name Baktasha Optin in particular, who was chained to his uh, bed, hospital bed a few weeks ago, a member of Kanun Medisandagan, 
Um, I would like to mention Ismail Khoi's name, who died in exile after many years of suffering, not being able to go back home. Um, and of course, Mukhtari and Puyande, who were victims of uh, chain secular, uh, chain murders of the secular intellectuals during 1990s. And many more poets, and you know, poets such as young poets, such as Fatima Ehtisari, Mehdi Musavi, who had to flee Iran in, during uh, the past couple of years after receiving uh, harsh sentences just for writing poetry. So that's one part of one sort of face of this uh, side of this coin. The, another side of the coin are the ongoing uh, annual ceremonies uh, led by Khamenei himself. Um, and many poets who are constantly being trained and they're joining this camp of um, sort of conformist sponsored poets by the state, many of them, such as Ali Reza who I study in the book, or Muhammad Reza uh, Amiri Sandaqe, these are poets who are very close to Khamenei. They have official posts and positions in the region, uh, such as Pakistan, Afghanistan, and uh, India, and you know, and uh, Ali Khamenei's literary project is very much closely tied to his political project. He has poets uh, who are Arab speaking, who are Turkish speaking, Azari poets, Russian poets, uh, Urdu speaking poets. He wants to show, even if it's just a project in front of you know, sort of a show, a very well engineered, well put together. Uh, show, he wants to, television show, I mean, um, he wants to emphasize on the fact that Iran is not his only territory. He very much has this mindset of medieval sultans who, you know, considered uh, uh, themselves, themselves to be sort of the king of way more than what their territory was, that their defined territory was. And, you know, that approach to me, which very much and very well could be um, explained and understood and analyzed by Eric Hobsbawm's uh, theory, Invention of Tradition, which I have used in the book extensively. Um, it can show that, you know, he, in fact, he, you know, every single time he gives a talk, he makes sure to distinguish himself from the uh, former rulers of Iran, calling them corrupt and, um, you know, power thirsty and this and that. I mean, he does the exact same thing under a completely different, uh, of course, um, you know, outlook. But, uh, but the core idea is the same, which I call invention of the traditions in the book. Um, and I try to explain that. So, I end here. Um, I, you know, this, these are my final remarks. I, I'm very sorry that uh, I couldn't share with you some poems that I prepared. Um, I'll happily circulate them later if anyone was interested. Or alternatively, you can um, you can read the book, um, which is full of poems uh, with English translation. So thank you for bearing with me. I appreciate that. Um, I just would like to start with a question of my own, if that's okay. Um, and I read your book and it was completely fascinating and I recommend it to anyone who is interested in Iranian studies or poetry at large. Um, one of the things that we are investigating at the Iran 1400 project is the issue of identity. 
And in your chapter on official poets, you mentioned the poet Tahereh Safarzadeh and how one could argue that her placement in this official canon of poets of the Islamic Republic could be a form of tokenization of sorts, given that she is one of the few women, few if not the only woman to receive official acclaim and recognition. I wanted to ask you, um, considering her and also just the official poets at large, um, if identity, you know, gender, ethnic, regional, or otherwise, was a consideration for the placement of these official poets in the canon of the Islamic public poetry. Yes, uh, thank you for the wonderful question, which actually uh, gives me the opportunity to maybe uh, elaborate a little bit on you know those aspects that I couldn't, I uh, didn't have the time to talk about. Um, uh, this is you know one of the uh, one of the questions actually that have come up in the past um, you know discussions of, around the book that why do we have only one why did you include only one uh, woman poet in this canon. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a very good question. Um, and the, the, the very simple answer to that question is that because there are only so many, um, you know, women poets that uh, actually made it to the core of this canon. Uh, it is a highly masculine, male-dominated canon to begin with. And, I, and I, again, I argue that in the book, that why is it like that? And why, for example, um, uh, becomes so important to the Islamic Republic to be, you know, included in the school textbooks, uh, to be given the title of Khadim al-Qur'an or the servant of Qur'an after her translation of Qur'an into English. Um, and, uh, and, you know, one of the major, uh, and, you know, the, the very uh, straightforward answer to your question is that, yes, identity very much matters. It's very much an identity-based it, 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 this canon itself is very much uh, focused on identity politics, right? Um, as much as we want to focus on the gray area that, you know, okay, religion is not the, everything and it's not the whole picture and religion itself should be kind of um, discussed and um, uh, we have to explain what do we mean by that. But the, rea the, rea the reality and the truth of the matter is that um, Islam and Islamic identity was extremely important to the uh, to the leaders of the Islamic Republic and to the officials. And after the revolution, those who showed more, uh, you know, sort of uh, religious tendencies, um, they received much more attention and they're embraced by the state. That's that's a real fact. I mean, we can't really we can't really talk about Iran and then constantly pretend that. Uh, religion is not a dividing factor because it is, um, and it's the it's very much the government itself that creates this binary. As much as we want to break away from the binary, this Islam versus secularism, I think, um, it is a real ma is, a, is you know is, is part of the reality of today's life in Iran. Um, and for a poet like Tahereh Safarzadeh, um, I think it was very important for. Uh, the revolutionary, um, the revolutionaries and revolutionary intelligentsia to, to include a woman like her, um, in order to put her up against um, other poets such as Farrokhzad in particular, and to a large extent also Simina Behbahani. You know, those are the poets who have been, although have been widely read and extremely popular, um, much more than Farrokhzad, one could argue. 
but the government and particularly in the in the second republic right after the death of Khomeini and with the rise of Khomeini to power i think he is the one who is extremely uh, conscious of the fact that we do need a female poet in order to represent her um uh, as a perfect model of uh, a woman poet uh, this woman has to be modest, has to uh, represent those ideals of the revolution, including wearing hijab and writing poetry that is uh, face conscious. And um, and Taurus Afrozada has all of that, had all of all of those criteria, right? So she was a perfect example and a perfect replacement, for, especially for those two poets that I named, Sulqa Farrokhzad and and Taurus and Simina uh, Behbahani. And on top of that, she was a good poet. And I think that that really played an important role, made the task of the government much easier to justify her as a sort of a, a representative of this canon, a female representative of this canon. I hope I, uh, I uh, answered your question. No, very much so. It, it was very, it was a great answer. And I obviously, identity did play an important role in this canon, in the construction of this canon. Um, I wanted to ask a question from our audience. Um, just a question about, could you please repeat the names of the poets that you covered in the book? Yes, um, and thank you for that, because I, for that question, because um, I actually didn't have the time to go through that. Um, and I thought maybe during the Q&A, we could talk about it. So 10 poets, as I mentioned, Mehzad um, Avestah, Tahira Safarzadeh, Muhammad Reza Abdul Malikian, Hanid Sabzawari, Ali Mu'allim, Ali Reza Qazbeh, Muhammad Reza Amiri Spandaqeh, Hassan Husseini, Qaysar Aminpur, and Salman Harati. And as I mentioned, I have divided them into two categories, and I have basically I used the model um, or the sort of the framework that um, the Afghan literary critic, um, actually, um, uh, uh, Mohammad Kazem Kazemi, who's also a poet himself, he has written a book um, about 10 poets of the revolution, although he hasn't actually, uh, he doesn't mention Mohammad Razamiri as stand up in that book. I, I um, introduced him as one of the uh, sort of the younger generations that, you know, had to show that. Uh, the sort of this canon is very much evolving and it's not just one canon of 10 poets. And also I mentioned in, in the introduction of the book that by no means I mean that there are only these 10 poets who belong to this canon. Um, there are many other poets actually such as Yusuf Ali Mishakot that I discuss in the book. His role was very important in sort of um, discrediting um, uh, major poets such as Ahmad Shamlu to defame, you know, he had this defamation project for many years in during 1980s, where um, he basically his main duty was to defame poets such as Ahmad Shamlu and and Mehdi uh, Ahavan Salas and so forth. So there are other poets who are very important um, in my view, um, but again, you know, in one book you can't really cover everything, and I really hope that this book. Uh, opens the ground for further inquiries and sort of research in the field. I think it's, it's um, at least that's my hope that it opens the discussion and more work will be done. For sure. On other poets. 
I will ask another question from our audience. So did you find evidence of the Supreme Literary Committee already understanding this role of poetry in promoting ideology or forming a political order before the revolution when he was a participant and imprisoned, et cetera? Wonderful question. Thank you. Yes, actually, a lot of a lot of that. Um, and, you know, he, there was a biography that came out um, uh, right before the book was published, um, I, right before I finished sort of the book, uh, which I have used extensively in the book, actually. And I show that, you know, because many, uh, also many critics who, uh, and who are reluctant to work on these uh, poets and particularly to consider Khamenei and his interest for poetry as an important matter, um, as an important part of his political project, um, uh, they kind of, they, you know, they're reluctant to actually acknowledge this. Um, but if they look into the history of Khamenei's life, which I have in the book, in the in the final chapter of the book, there is a there is a section where I show the evolution of Khamenei himself in the pre and post revolutionary period, how he started as a bookworm and then how he became uh, sort of a, um, a poetry loving dictator, right, over over time. So. And I show this sort of transformation um, during his imprisonment, of course, before that also. And you know, his very close and intimate connection with certain poets of uh, the guerrilla movement, uh, the, the guerrilla poets, also his close um, friendship with some members of Kanun um, Writers Association. Most of uh, the members of the Writers Association during his uh, uh, leadership have been prosecuted or killed, such as Mukhtar and Puyande, with whom also he had some kind of friendship before the revolution. So there is a lot there, right, in terms of the personal relationship between Khamenei and uh, some of these poets, um, as well as his own interest and fascination um, by poets such as Sahib Tabrizi and Indian uh, style of poetry, quote-unquote, Sabke uh, Hendi, uh, which again, I show in the book why he's fascinated by certain poets for his own moral project, uh, moral literary project, or Korje Adadi Akhlaqi or Akhlaqi Adadi. I hope I answered your question. Um, so our next question is, is there no cause and result relationship between the revolution and poetry? I think the revolution brought about changes in the themes. Uh, sure. I mean, yes, I do believe that there is no cause and effect um, relationship between revolution and poetry for reasons that I have elaborated. Uh, what do I mean by that is that we can't really say, and not this is not only about the context, uh, the Iranian context. I think this is something we can apply to any other context. You look at uh, Bolshevik Russia, you look at any other country, you know, Mussolini's Italy, you see that there are trends in the pre-revolutionary period that are very much uh, continuing after the revolution, though they're evolving, right? And that's why I'm using the word co-optation here, the manipulation, co-optation, is that showing that continuity and change at the same time. Uh, and let's not forget, change and rupture are two different things. So when we say change, it means that something has continued to become something else or has transformed to something else, which implies a certain kind of or certain type of continuity, of course. And that's what I am concerned with in this book, to show that there are many themes, 
there has been change. Of course, there has been change. And I show those changes. There has been sometimes dramatic changes, in fact, in the themes that we have mentioned. But those changes, those themes don't come, didn't come uh, out of nowhere. They're, they exist in the, in the tradition. Uh, we see the mystical uh, literature, mystical, mystical poetry has been co-opted during the, during the war. We see um, the, uh, the, 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 the genre of elegy or uh, Marseillais um, re being revived during the time when Khomeini died. Um, we have a lot of, we have more than 350 elegies just published in one single book. Um, after he after he died, we see uh, that uh, Khomeini's poems, actually, and Khomeini's poems, in fact, are very much influenced by poets such as Hafez, Bidel, Sahibat Abizi, and so forth. So we can't really um, um, say that you know this there is a cause and effect that because the revolution happened, um, this particular trend uh, showed up. Of course, it was to, to a certain extent a sponsor and supported by the revolution, but it also existed before the revolution. It just came to the fore in a more, much more visible, vivid way. Great. Um, our next question will be, do you see eulogists, uh, Madak, continue to use poetry as a vehicle to propagate the Nizam's narrative? Again, excellent question. Thank you. I mean, these are all like giving me the chance to to talk about certain parts of the book that I uh, didn't have the time to talk about. Yes, the answer to the question is yes, very much so. In fact, after I don't know if you're aware, Mister or Miss Lafa, um, is um, that uh, one of the one of the one of the very interesting, in my view, and fascinating uh, developments after the revolution, particularly in the past uh, decade or so, has been. Uh, the foundation, the formation of schools, uh, certain schools and universities for the eulogists. So meaning they just go to school in order to study eulogy and become a eulogist, become a madoh, madohi, And uh, Khomeini, after uh, the first decade that you know he see, he had his poetry night, now he has a, a different, separate poetry night that um, are are being held specifically for the Maddah, for the eulogist. He gave a different talk, uh, his performance, the content of his talk is mostly um, actually uh, focused on the devotional poetry. And then if you also look at devotional poetry, I mean, you know, um, uh, again, uh, you know, devotional poetry is something that if we go back to the advent of Islam, to this day, we see that devotional poets, actually devotional poetry has been one of the major uh, trends, right? Uh, both in uh, Arab and Islamic, uh, Arab uh, and Persian uh, speaking world. Um, and, you know, during the war, perhaps um, if, if you are um, as old as I am, you remember Sadaq uh, Hangaran, of course. Um, and there are many other, uh, Haj, 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 Haj Ali Karimi and uh, many other, and their, their name escaped me but uh, right now, but there are many, many other eulogists who are to this day, Poor, um, who actually used poetry. And again, in the chapter, on the war chapter in the book, I actually discuss uh, the role of Sadaq Ahangaran in particular during the war. 
um, in the co-optation of uh, Persian poetry in his and Persian rhyme also, and you know the sort of the Persian literary devices um, uh, into eulogies. Um, and they were extremely effective and very important um, uh, to inspire the youth to actually join the battlefield to the point that he became known uh, by the, under the title that actually Iraqi uh, forces used this for the first time um, as Khomeini's Nightingale as a title for Sadaq uh, Ahangaran for actually you know, being a maddah and using Persian poetry. Uh, Great. Um... Our next question, yes. Um, thank you for your response. Given your response, we may conclude that the revolution of poetry can be considered a genre which adopts the mechanics of poetry from the past and put it in a new context. I think that's very much a central point of your book, yes. Very much, yes. And you know, and, and let's just be careful with the, the, the title revolutionary, right? Adjective, sorry, Christian, I'm just being very quick about this, because I mentioned in the book, it, revolutionary poetry is a term that you can also use for the, liter the liter literary output of the guerrilla poets of the 1970s. And also many poems that Ahmad Shamlu and Esmail Khoui and Mehdi Akhavan Salas wrote actually in support of the revolution, right before the revolution, and also in the wake of the revolution. Sher uh, Engalabi, you know, those were also Sher Engalabi or revolutionary poetry. The, the definition that you basically uh, gave here, which I think is perfect, could be any type of ideologically charged political poetry. Uh, they, they all take uh, themes and genres and devices of the past and then use them for a, for a distinct political purpose. Um, we got some great questions coming in. So um, this was actually a question that came to my mind while I was reading your book, especially the initial chapters. Um, I was wondering how you developed the term Islamic Republic poetry, and you kind of discussed this a bit um, in relation to the last comment. Uh, what exactly is Islamic about it and what is Republican? And also you mentioned the term throughout the book, uh, committed art and literature. Um, could you please explain a bit on how this term especially was co-opted from leftist literary terminology by these official republics of the Islamic Republic? Yeah, wonderful questions. So um, in, in, in regards to your first question, uh, Islamic Republican is one term, is one, is one uh, sort of phrase, not two phrases. So it's not Islamic and Republican, but Islamic Republican. Which is basically trans which translates to Shere Jomhuriye Islami. If uh, I, if you recall in the um, in the introduction of the book, I have uh, a section in which I um, I actually explain what do I mean by official literature, official literature or adabiyat rasmi as we translate that uh, to Persian. And I, yes, I, in that chat, in that section, page 14, um, up to 17 of the book, um, I, there I explain why do I use the term and why do I prefer the term Islamic Republican over Islamist or Islamic or revolutionary or committed poetry. Um, because I find those other titles quite misleading. Um, and you can put many other different, you know, categories of poetry under those categories, under the under those categories, and still make sense. 
Um, this is a distinct, what I'm trying to show in this book is that as much as it has in common with other literary trends, poetic trends, it's also a distinct literary trend. And the reason I'm using the Islamic Republican uh, as a title, as sort of an adjective here, is um, precisely because I'm focusing on the sources of support, the state-oriented or state-funded literature. So the role of the state becomes extremely important. And the shadow case in the book, which I forgot to mention uh, during, my, um, during my talk, um, the shadow case in this book is Soviet Russia. Uh, and I have tried in the book to show how much in common these two these two contexts, how much they have in common, really. Um, if we look at the role of ideology, dissemination of ideology, the role of poetry, the Stalinist uh, sort of approach and mindset to engineering the soul or writers as the engineers of the soul, those are the terms that you can actually find in early revolutionary period in the um, state-funded, um, you know, sort like literary platforms. So I'm using this term, Islamic Republican, as a form of official literature, which existed elsewhere in the world in the past, right? In the book, I give the example uh, in China, in Soviet Russia, in North Africa, um, you know, it's it, 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 Italy under Mussolini, although I don't really go into details about any of these, but which I hope really to do with my, you know, as one of my uh, projects in the future, um, that how the use of language and literature to legitimize the uh, sort of this authoritarian control throughout history has been important and has repeated elsewhere. And the fact that we see it in Iran, it doesn't mean that it's just specific and unique to Iran. And I think the term official literature and Islamic Republican literature as a connection, so it's a connecting term to that con theoretical concept, helps us to put Iran on the map, which is a global map, which I think is very important. One of the pitfalls of the Iranian studies field, I think, and this doesn't just limit, uh, it's not limited only to poetry, it's limit, you know, it, it can be applied to any other field really, is that we just study ourselves and we just, we are interested in like just seeing what happened in Iran, 1953 and so forth, 1979 revolution. I think really the time has come for us to go a little more beyond Iranian borders and see what was happening around the world before, after, and at the time of the revolution. And I think this is a great example of, you know, this liter literature and ideology, the great example of uh, it, uh, you know, a common uh, and similar pattern that we have seen elsewhere in the world. And I think those cases really are inspiring and helpful in understanding and contextualizing the Iranian situation. In terms of the, the, the term ta'ahod or commitment, which is, I think, very important. And one of the terms that have been really used over and over again, still being used by the leader of the Islamic Republic, by the poets who write in favor of the state, that they call themselves committed poets, uh, It's really fascinating because if you go back to the, to the pre-revolutionary period and even after the revolution, during, especially during the 1980s, even to this day, there are some poets of leftist tendencies and also poets who are secular leanings that also consider themselves as committed poets. In fact, they were the ones who used that term for the first time and defined it and considered uh, sort of this uh, idea of ta'ahud or commitment to be um, 
sort of a, the, the, the duty of the poet and the writer to be engaged with his social setting, right? Um, with this political, with the political events, and not to be detached from the society. This was this was a really heated debate during 1960s and 1970s in Iran. And we have uh, writers such as um, Jalal Ahmad, Qulam uh, Saidi. We have uh, you know um, poets like Ahmad Shamlu in particular had a really important role in the notion of you know sort of the uh, evolution of the notion of Tahoud in the poet poetic thing. And then we see that concept being sort of borrowed and then redefined and revisited in the post-revolutionary period by Khomeini himself and also by poets and writers who wrote, um, you know, with the same ideological alignment. So um, again, uh, I think it's one, a great example. The, the concept of commitment is a great example of cooptation. Uh, and the, the cooperation is not only literary, right? There was, there was a very famous slogan during 1980s that ta'ahod is more important than ta'hasof, meaning commitment is more important than professionalism. And based on that one slogan, many scholars in universities, many uh, doctors, actually surgeons, you know, many people in the uh, Air Force, actually, they were all purged because their professionalism overweighed their commitment, like revolutionary commitment, of course, ideological commitment. So, <clears throat> and the meaning of um, commitment, of course, changed. Um, although it was still very much the same idea of uh, offering service to the public and being engaged with politics, but to hold a specific ideological belief which was promoted by the state. That really was at the core of um, the new meaning of commitment and also to be, um, to be uh, sort of a, a, a true and genuine follower of Islam and to be a good Muslim became also part. So religious, the religious component also became really important in the co-optation of commitment. Great, thank you so much. This question is, um, based on your experience, obviously, as an academic, as a poet in your own right, and as an observer of the um, the politics, the culture, and the situation of Iran. So one of the main goals of the Iran 1400 project is to look at the evolution of ideas and institutions during the past 100 years, and also uh, hearing from experts and Iranians people's wishes for the next century. Um, your book, which we discussed today, um, mostly deals with state-sponsored poetry. Um, and it is no secret that the concept or the idea of freedom is something that Iranian people have been grappling with over the past century. Um, as a former student and as um, someone who's interested in your perspective, I'd like to know what you think about the role of poetry in exploring the idea of freedom in Iran. Um, has poetry played any role in it? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And I think a, a whole book could be written on this, um, on this idea, really. Um, and you know, uh, yes, um, it, it, there, is a, there is a very intimate and close relationship between poetry and freedom. And it's, uh, the main manifestation of this idea really comes around uh, a century ago in the, in the rise of the constitutional revolution. Which, if you recall, we actually covered in one of our uh, classes, and actually the both of both classes. 
like the idea of freedom, independence, the idea of individual autonomy. It really is not an exaggeration to say that poets and writers and journalists of the constitutional era, uh, as, as, as far as the modern poetry, of course, literature is concerned, were really the main pioneers of um, writing and promoting the idea of freedom or azadi uh, in their work. And enter, you know, so the, the, the entry to this concept, to, to, the, to the idea of uh, freedom uh, in the modern period, uh, starts with poetry, starts with uh, the poetic output of poets such as uh, Bahar, De Khoda, uh, uh, you know, the newspapers such as Suresh Rafil, No Bahar, and you name it, you know, and then many other writers who, the, the next generation, really the, um, the idea of freedom itself uh, in poetry, meaning to breaking to break away from the rhyme and the strict convention, literary poetic conventions such as qafir, rhyme, ladis, refrain, meter, razm, and so forth, right? Which really was the the main pioneers of that. That were the constitutionalist poets. Although we consider Mimayushij as the founder or the father of modern Persian poetry, but really like the this idea of freeing oneself from the rhyme and rhythm started in the constitutional revolution by poets such as Mirzadeh or Tasnit's uh, uh, songs by Aref Ghazlini. Uh, so this is and Lahuti, this is like, these are very important um, factors to keep in, to sort of, uh, to kind of refresh our memory that um, the idea of freedom and poetry and literature in the Iranian context are extremely interconnected. Maybe another good example is France, um, you know, and the way in which poetry and literature played such an important role. But I, I would say even more so in the case of Iran. Um, and it's not a coincidence that poets such as Farrokh Yazdi threw their mouths in prison in protest to Reza Shah's uh, cruelty and killed in prison, right? Um, or we have other poets coming later after the constitutional poets, um, particularly the, you know, I start the book, as you know, by the 1950, the, the aftermath of the 1953 coup. Um, and I show how this lack and crisis of freedom for poets and writers, uh, this sort of mass uh, detention, arrest, and persecution of poets and writers really became one of the major triggers of the revolution in 1979. So they are very much uh, intertwined. And also in the post-revolutionary period, as I mentioned at the end of my talk, we still struggle uh, with, uh, with the idea of freedom of speech, with censorship, again, which is in a way very much connected with the idea of poetry and freedom. Language itself, um, and the self-censorship, right? If you decide not to do, not to self-censor, then what do you do as an author? What is your choice? Do you remain silent? Do you write differently or do you leave? There are three different options in front of you. Um, and you know, those poets who not decided to leave, but had to leave or had to stay outside like myself, um, we do struggle on a day-to-day -day basis with the idea of freedom and poetry and that to what extent, um, you know, you pay the cost for what you write. Um, and so it's a serious, it's a serious matter and it's a serious uh, problem, I would say.
that we still grapple with to this day. Um, and I wanted to ask, that was a great response. And I think um, also as a former student, we did cover a lot of these these poets and these ideas in your courses. And I remember you really emphasized the idea of freedom, of autonomy. Um, and as I said in your introduction, really understanding the power behind the written word. You know, before taking your courses, I really didn't understand that poet could be more than just some flowery speech or mm -hmm. some rhyme, that actually there could be some uh, real meaning to it, real political and real social meaning. So that's something I'm very appreciative of from you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask one last question, if I may, and it concerns your, I believe it's your third chapter in the book, and it discusses the motif of the village in Persian poetry. Mm -hmm. And personally, I was, I found this chapter very fascinating because here I think I found the most direct co-option of the poets, the official poets of the Islamic Republic, and Republic um, with the leftist poets prior to the 1979 revolution. Um, could you just maybe discuss that a bit about this and how they uh, changed this motif from something that was supposed to um, bring to light some of the downtrodden people of the country, the issues of rapid urbanization, to showing images of, wow, these villages are beautiful, we should respect the people of the villages. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, uh, I, I can surely discuss that uh, very briefly. Hopefully, I won't spoil the book for everyone uh, that far I haven't. <laughs> and if I have, I apologize. But uh, these are wonderful questions. And I think, um, you know, the uh, sort of the portrayal of the village uh, as, you, as you mentioned, it has undergone really interesting and fascinating transformations over the past four decades and before, before that. Um, so in that chapter, which is basically the third chapter of the book is in front of me now, um, um, I show how the village as a symbol has been sort of a conduit into which the ideology can be poured before and after the revolution. Again, I think this is one of the ways to focus and emphasize on the continuity rather than rupture, right? And co-optation. Um, so I start by, and I start in the chapter by basically showing that uh, how this uh, sort of political uh, motive of for village was used as a, in relation to the political motive for nostalgia um, and how this nostalgia for this ideal life which again is not specific to Iranian context, right? I have shown in the book uh, that, uh, for example, Raymond Williams, the British uh, scholar, has has this wonderful book called The Country and the City that was published in 1973, in which he actually showed that this rural world um, has been continually and systematically altered in ways in in, in ways that. Um, sort of stem from and contribute to the development of the capitalist economy. He discusses in the book, and I just read from uh, the chapter. Um, and there are, and I show that how this this is also the case in the Iranian context. How in the pre-revolutionary period we have this moment of uh, uh, sort of a literary response to the to the to the white revolution project, right? The Shah's white revolution project. Where uh, we have writers such as Ghulam Hussein al-Saidi, um, Jalal al-Ahmad, 
Um, and many other writers, or Ibrahim Golestan, in fact, they made movie, Darush Mahdri made this movie Cow, that, you know, please Khomeini, and like many other writers who wrote about villages. And they started this ethnographical uh, sort of survey on remote villages in Iran, their rituals, their customs for the first time as part of the literary output. And again, this is very much the case in the Soviet Russia. There were many poets and writers who actually wrote in the late 19th century, 20th century. I think it's a fascinating parallel if you look at um, the, the Soviet literary history. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in this chapter, I show how this idea of, and, you know, in the pre-revolutionary period, of course, uh, using this peasantry life or the peasant as sort of this devastated character whose life and whose cows and farm has been taken away from, have been taken away from him. And sort of is a way to crit criticize um, and the sort of the uh, fast uh, pace uh, of the modernization process, the modernization project of uh, the, the late Pahlavi uh, uh, state. Um, but in the post-revolutionary period, we see that in the, also in the post-revolutionary period, we see that we have this continuation again in the use of the village motif in, in literature. What is fascinating in the, about the post-revolutionary period is that Khomeini himself uses the village motif not only in his political um, sort of ideology, but also in his public speeches. And he also has this very rural accent also, right? He has an accent that is very familiar, intimate, close, um, relatable to, to ordinary folks. And using this downtrodden uh, sort of, he comes up with, with new concepts, with new words inspired by the Quranic text, by Quran, uh, such as Mustaz Afin, um, which is also not from Quran, of course, but, you know, sort of uh, using the terms such as Mustaz Af or rural Rushdai as being the main owners of the revolution, and then having the agricultural crusade Jihad uh, Keshavarzi, of course, that happens during the 1980s, which is basically a plan to uh, develop and uh, sort of develop the uh, villages. And uh, you know, I mentioned in the in this chapter that political economists uh, have discussed uh, of Iran, such as Jawad Salehi Aswani, that how the revolution actually helped villages to to um, you know to make progress in that sort of agricultural lifestyle that was very much troubled as a result of the modernization project of the Shah. So it's really, again, it's not a black and white. It's a more complicated, you know, picture, right? Um, there is a, and that's why I have the dark and bright side of village as the subtitle uh, for the chapter. Because again, um, there, are, there are positive and negative aspects. There are good and bad intertwined. Um, and as far as, you know, the, again, you see, um, as far as the literature of the war is concerned, you see that the, the, the image or the persona of the soldier is very much connected to this rural background. There are many rural soldiers who are uh, coming and joining the war and becoming martyrs. And this becomes part of the children literature of the time, interestingly enough. Um, and, you know, um, I show how um, 
um, in this sort of uh, period, this village motif in Persian literature um, changes into something completely different and distinct from, let's say, garden or bark or golestan, rose garden of the medieval period, but still very much is connected with it. It's a very modern um, uh, concept, but at the same time, it creates a binary versus the city as far as the Islamic Republican poetry is concerned, which is, again, important. The city becomes the place of disillusionment, and uh, village becomes this nostalgic space this, uh, that represents the ideal good life uh, that everyone should return to. And this is, again, part of the return to the roots project um, that was part of the you know, pre-revolutionary projects of people such as Jalal al-Ahmad, of course. Again, there is the continuity, I think, in the political ideology of returning to the self and to the roots and to authenticity and village become the representation of that in the poetry. Very great discussion. Thank you so much, Fatima Shams, Professor Fatima Shams, for your time um, and for the, discussing your book. Uh, the book is titled A Revolution in Rhyme, and I recommend everyone go get a copy of it wherever they can. Um, it's very fascinating. And as I said in the introduction, a truly groundbreaking study on these official poets of the Islamic Republic. Um, I thank you for joining us. Um, and just to wrap up, I welcome everyone again to the Iran 1400 project. Please check out our website, iran1400.org. You can follow us also on social media, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, and we also have a very active Twitter account. Um, we also are recording podcasts in English, and you can find our podcast basically wherever you hear your podcast, whether it be Apple or Spotify. And if you are interested in, in participating in the project, please uh, reach out to us on our website. So thank you so much for joining us all today. It truly was a pleasure. And I think we had a great conversation with Professor Shams. Thank you.